Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner Brett Boone as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with eight-time Gold Glove winner, four-time All-Star, and World Series champ Jim Edmonds. There's a fly ball center field, long run for Jim Edmonds. Here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. Today in the program, we've got an eight-time Gold Glove winner, World Series champion, and was inducted in the St. Louis Cardinals Hall of Fame in 2014. Ladies and gentlemen, Jim Edmonds. Jimmy, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. How's it going? It's going good. You just got back from Mexico. Little little R and R. How was it? Yeah. A lot of R and R, and now I'm paying a little bit for it. If you know what I mean, it's uh, a little, uh, little reverse Montezuma's revenge when you come back to the states. <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd like <laughs> to go down to Mexico for a while. Leave all these kids; they're they're a pain in the neck. Oh, I'm all right. That. Diamond Bar High School alumni, right down the street from El Dorado High School. So, for those of you listening to the Boone Podcast, Jimmy and myself, we. We grew up, went to school, probably what, 10, 15 minutes from each other? Yeah, probably I exactly think, at the most 15 minutes. Yeah, I think we played against you guys. You know what? Excuse me for this, but I, I'm getting to the point in the age, and I, I forget I, I forget a lot of, unless it, you were on my team, like Nevin. Phil Nevin was a teammate of mine at, at El Dorado, but it's like, I forget who I played against, who was in the league. I know we had a lot of big leaguers in that area. Uh, I think it's always been a hotbed. You know, it's it's 10 minutes from Anaheim Stadium. Um, you know, I, I, I grew up in Jersey, and when Dad got traded to the Angels, that's when I moved out to Southern Cal. You know, I was a Jersey kid. and then That's you know, right. I, I want, forgot about that. Yeah, I didn't want to go. Southern Cal, they told me, hey, uh, kid we're moving and i'm like no way you know i'm not going out there to southern cal surfs up that's a bunch of bs you know i'm a jersey kid took me about a month and i thought now this is pretty cool uh but he went to the angels you you're born and raised down the street from the angels you end up being an angel uh in your debut but you remember those times in those high school years yeah i do you know it's funny your dad i think um was he came to the angels, right. As I think I might've been in like eighth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade, about 82, 83. Um, and then when I got drafted, he was just, he was still there, but that was his last year there. So, um, yeah, we used to get, um, when I got a little bit older in high school, my dad used to take us to Anaheim stadium and drop us off. And then he would come back and, you know, he would be like, Hey, at this time, meet us right here. Um, because there were no cell phones back in those days. So that was the way that we got to watch baseball games when we were kids. And tell me a little bit about you as a kid. Uh, growing up, is is baseball what you, what you always wanted to do, or did you have other other aspirations? Were there other sports? Tell me about Jimmy Edmonds as a kid. You know, I, you know what's really funny is, like, I think, obviously, you growing up with your dad and your and your grandpa – um, I always thought that big leaguers were kind of like gods. Like when I used to go to Anaheim Stadium, you couldn't even really get close enough to get autographs during the season. You, you know, they came out 
and the parking lot and everything was gated off. And you remember those days in Anaheim when the gate, you know, the, the parking lot was gated off. Nobody really came out. So it was like something you really never got a chance to see. And I really wasn't one of those autograph hound guys, but still thought, man, I would never, ever get close to one of these guys. These guys are like gods. And I just thought it was something some people did. And it wasn't, it wasn't a, a something that was attainable. So I just played for fun. I played um, soccer growing up. I played baseball growing up. I got into high school football when I got to foot, when I got to high school. And then, so luckily in California, you know, we got to play football. And then when that was over, played soccer. And then that was over, played baseball. So I got to really enjoy all three sports. Didn't get a whole lot of time off. But um, other than that, that's all we did. I mean, that's all I did. I'm sure that's all you did growing up. So, um, you know, I loved it. Now I'm living in the Midwest and it's like they got to pick their sports. They've got to pick the timing, the way the weather is. And it just seems like it's a lot tougher now, especially on my son right now. He's uh He's struggling to want to play a couple of sports, and they're kind of clash other. So, Jimmy, we get to high school. Uh, you get drafted in the seventh round, and I know uh, before the draft that particular year, you were slated to go higher. I think you had a shoulder injury or something that held you back, but you end up going in the seventh round. You signed with the Angels, team you grew right grew up right down the street from. Was there any thought to to college at that point, or or did you know you wanted to go to pro ball right away? You know what? I grew up as a pitcher and I threw, I think I topped out around 93, maybe 94, right at the end of my junior year, um, right in the summer as a left-handed pitcher. So that's all I really knew. Um, I hit a lot and uh, was a decent hitter, but not what I turned into. So I didn't really know anything. And then right at the end or right at the beginning of my senior year, I pitched for a scout team. And uh, I think it was, I don't know why I always think it was like Mel Hall or someone was there getting ready for spring training. I threw him a fastball about as hard as I could throw a fastball and he hit about nine miles and just barely fouled. And I thought, man, I got to do something different here. So I tried to turn like a fastball over and I felt something pull in my shoulder. And ever since then, my shoulder was just toast for the rest of that year. So I just kept playing, playing center field. I pitched every now and then and kind of got through it. But, uh, yeah, no, I was sitting in class one day and my uh, coach walks in and goes, hey, you got drafted in the seventh round. And I looked at him and I said, what does that mean? So that's how it was back in the day. Isn't it amazing the way we, I mean, we used to sit there, you know, you, you did. I mean, that's that's a pretty accurate story. I mean, today, you know, with all the technology for these kids getting drafted today, I mean, you can watch it on ESPN. That was the farthest thing that we had. You had the NFL draft. That was a big deal. But us baseball guys, I mean, we get like a telegram. And if you didn't get drafted the first day, I mean, you might get a letter in the mail. <laughs> yeah, we drafted you in the 28th round. Um, but yeah, it's amazing how things have changed. So you end up signing with the Angels. I think you go to Bend, Oregon. And yeah. explain to the people out there listening to the Boone podcast. I signed out of college. Um, you know, I had those three years at USC to kind of grow up and, and kind of get away from mom and dad. But yet they were close enough to still. But I was on my own. I had responsibilities. I watch these kids today. There's very few kids I see that are mature enough physically and mentally to make that that jump from high school baseball to professional. Because we all know how it is. You go from playing a 25-game schedule, all of a sudden, 
you're playing 142 in the minor leagues. You're you're facing, you know, you're facing men all of a sudden, not your not your high school kids. So tell me a little bit about that transition and and how it was for you at 18 years old. Man, I was so overmatched. I mean, I was actually 17 when I signed. I hadn't been 18 yet. And I believe that I took off uh, for Bend, Oregon, even before my uh, 18th birthday. And so, uh, man, I was playing against guys that were out of high school, I mean, out of college and out of junior college. And guys were throwing sliders. I had never seen a slider before. I think I struck out one time in two years in high school, like the last two years. And I think I might have struck out probably 14 out of the first 17 times. So uh, it, it was definitely a, a transition, and um, no, I was scared to death. I remember just going up there, and I flew up to, uh, I might have been Salem or something like that, and I sat in the stands the first night, and I, I mean, I I was, you know, as far as traveling at all, just like traveled with my parents here and there, Lake Tahoe, Lake Powell, really that was about it, you know, the river, the lake, but going up there on my own and sitting in the stands at some rinky-dink stadium, uh, and with about 72 other people and watching these guys play that were all bigger and stronger than me, I didn't know what was going to happen. So it was, it was, I don't know, I think overwhelming is an understatement. And fast forward a few years, uh, we got a chance to play against each other in the PCL. You got there in 92. I was there in 92. You know how that, how it goes for us early sometimes some of us early in our big league career i get called to the big leagues next thing you know in 93 i was back i was on that shuttle uh up and down but when you got to triple a you were playing in edmonton the first time which is a good good yard to hit it you know i played in calgary good place to hit oh but then the 93 season the 93 season i always think about this because i remember playing against you guys and we play in Vancouver, Canada. And unless you've actually played there, explain to everybody what what it's like going from Edmonton to Vancouver. They got the it seems like the grass is is ten inches tall, so you can't get any infield hits. The the power alleys are like three sixty five, so they're short to the gap, but the ball goes nowhere. So you get a you know you got a small outfield outfielders can run under anything. I mean it's a tough place to hit. Tell me about that that uh, experience going Edmonton to Calgary at, at the AAA level. Yeah, that's funny you say that. I, I, it's hard to explain. I, I think the only way you can explain it would be like hitting a weighted ball, like you know those heavy balls that you would hit. Like you couldn't hit a ball hard enough to get it over an outfielder's head. You couldn't hit a ball through the infield and. Um, it was amazing. I remember guys just hitting balls all day long and uh, everyone come home and then you go on the road and guys would get jammed and go down to go down to Scottsdale and hit a ball decent and it'd go up into the grass and then you'd come home and hit a ball harder than that and it hit the top of the wall. So it, it was a tough place. And I think I might have hit 11 home runs uh, that year um, and I bet you I probably hit nine of them on the road. But um, wow, like playing in that ballpark, it, it just, it brings back some crazy memories because, like I said, it, it was probably the only place that was bad. I mean, you said you played in Calgary. I actually went six for six in a game in Calgary uh, there one time. And um, it, it just like everywhere he went, he'd rather play there than playing in, uh, in, than in Vancouver. 
Yeah, it's amazing. Still to this day, you know, people, you know, they always ask you, uh, what was your favorite ballpark to play in? What was your least favorite? Where did the ball carry? (laughs) And Vancouver, even though I never, you know, I was never the home team there. I made a couple trips and, uh, you know, I ended up playing a a decent amount of years uh, in Seattle, which is kind of right down the road from Vancouver. Similar air, but nothing's like that Vancouver that Vancouver stadium. And I still say, Hey, what's your favorite? When people ask me, what's your favorite stadium? I say, well, probably Anaheim stadium. You know, I love playing at Yankee stadium. What's your least favorite Vancouver. <laughs> that's, say, yeah. that's not, that's not the league. I said, no, you don't understand. Unless you've been to the Cove, uh, I can't put words behind it. You just got to kind of, you, you kind of got to live it. It's like we'd pull in for a four game set and think, Oh, let's get rained out or something. We don't want to have to play. We don't want to have to hit at this ballpark. Taking BP was just, it was demoralizing. Yeah, it's almost like the opposite of zero gravity. You know, it's like you see things in the, the opposite of Coors Field. It was like you just, right. it was so bizarre. Like I said, imagine the baseball just weighed three times as much as it did, and that's what you were hitting. So it would go, you know, it'd go half the distance, it felt like, as a normal baseball would. Yeah. Your skippers are, hey, just hit the hit the ball up the middle. I skip. You want to hit? <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Does, you no know, there's kid. nothing else you can tell you. It's it's your yard. It's where you're playing. But no, that's those are some some not so great memories. But I do remember that part. All right, ninety three. Uh, this had to be a cool thing. Uh, we mentioned in the opening, you grew up ten minutes away from from the big A. You grew up. Uh, you know, going and, and watching games and, and trying to get a glimpse of, of your favorite players. You're making your big league debut uh, right down the street. How special f- was that for you? And uh, how was how was that first ticket request for you, uh, all your buddies and family members? Tell me a little bit about that. Well, I mean, well, you know how the tickets go. But uh, first of all, I got called up and I flew from the Coob all the way to Detroit. And the very first minute I got there, they're like, you're in the outfield, left field today. And I was like, what? I'm playing, you know, old Detroit stadium, all that history and all that stuff. Anyways, played there, then go to Toronto. And then I finally get to come home a week later. But it was weird because growing up, going to that stadium and then actually stepping foot on that field and looking back up in the air and seeing the stands from a different angle was so crazy. It was like, it, it almost felt like, cause you know, when you're in the stadium so early, there's no one around, there's, you know, no one is talking. It's just, it almost felt like it was, I was there out there by myself in like dreamland. Like I'm just kind of walking around, like no one's outside playing catch yet. And just looking up in the stands going, man, I can't believe I used to sit right there and just wait for people to hit me foul balls and never even got a foul ball as I was a kid. And now I'm standing there on the field getting ready to play my first game. So it was pretty, it was pretty surreal. And the tickets were a joke. This is before we do the tickets now where the IRS can tax them. Right. To probably get the hour early to, to leave tickets, probably at least 20 a night. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I used to, I, it, well, fortunately and unfortunately for me where I grew up, I, I never was the, that was never my home team, but I know what you're talking about coming to Anaheim. Uh, 
uh, coming to San Diego for me, it's like I, I got to tell our, our uh, traveling secretary, give him a couple weeks notice. Like, you know, San Diego, I'm going to I'm going to hit you hard. So just be aware. You know, nowadays, you're right. IRS taxes everything. So it's almost like you're making deals with your buddy. Like, hey, can I get two of yours? Can I get four of yours? And, and you kind of prepare for it. But you come up, you know, what I remember about those times, I remember Tim Salmon. I remember J.T. Snow. Garrett Anderson, he's a little younger than us, but but uh, you came up, I believe, with JT and Timmy Salmon, and uh, yeah, you know, I'd played JT. I played high school. He went to Los Alamitos High School, right down the street from us. Timmy Salmon, probably that '92 year I played in in the in the Pacific Coast League, he was probably the best player in the league. Um, so, what do you remember yeah, about he, that that young team, those up. young players? Yeah, Timmy got called up when I got to AAA halfway through the season. But uh, I think it was uh, 91 or 92, Chad Curtis made the team. Then at the end of 92, Tim Salmon made the team. 93, I got called up. Um, And 94 was my rookie year. Then uh, Garrett Anderson was the next year after that. Then it was Darren Erstad, I think, the next year after that. And the next year after that was Troy Gloss. Uh, we all just came up one year after another. And uh, unfortunately, we were a really good team, but we didn't really have much pitching. I mean, we had the big guys with Finley and Langston, but that was pretty much it. And, uh, you know, we had some we had some good clubs. We just couldn't win. You know, we couldn't break through. So in 95, you get called up in 93. 95 is kind of your breakout year. You hit 290, you hit 33 jacks, you drive in 107. Uh, kind of become a star. 97 and 98, you win your first two gold gloves. And I want to, you know, everybody's asked you about it. We still see it today on, on classic games or or some of the greatest catches in the history of the game. Uh, it, without a doubt, is. Walk me through that that play you made, going away from everything, laying out, making that catch. Uh, that was in 1997. Yeah, um, you know, in 92, I was in Venezuela, and I, I made the same similar play, except for instead of being completely over my head with both of my arms outstretched, I reached out with just one arm because I knew I was getting close to the fence. And when I landed, I slid on the warning track, and my hand actually went under the gate. Um, I forget what stadium we were at. I think we are in, like, Lara, wherever, where uh, Luis uh, Soho was from. And I made that same play and I thought, wow, that was pretty good, but I never thought twice about it. And so I just happened to be, you know, playing shallow and happened to be lucky enough. And I tease him all the time that David Howard was hitting, didn't have a lot of power. And Jason Dixon hung him a breaking ball. He just kind of flipped it up in the air, but I knew that I was going to run it down. I just didn't know I was going to have to dive for it. And kind of just hit up there so high that I literally, when I turned, my back and started running and when I looked up over my head I could literally see the balls like it was coming down right on top of me and normally you, when you see that as you're running away as an infielder you're like oh I got a chance but as an outfielder the ball is usually just taken off and the ball is literally just coming straight down on top of me and I thought man I'm going to catch this ball and I wasn't going to give up until I did and I knew that if I didn't catch the ball we were going to lose in that game and uh that's just kind of how I played the game you know I, I knew the game was on the line I thought why not go after it and do the best I can and um, fortunately for me, I it stayed in my glove and, uh, ended up being one of those things that is, is going to probably go down in history as one of the better plays that had been made. 
Well, I'll tell you this, and you know us infielders, especially us middle infielders, we're kind of snobbish when it comes to the outfield. You know, like, hey, we play the middle infield, a lot tougher in here. <laughs> but I'll tell you, when you made that play, and still to this day when I watch it, I said, now that is a play. And and I remember I, ta- I was talking to somebody that, you know, and I said, Jimmy's going to come on the podcast. And first thing they say is, how about that catch? I say, yeah, we're going to talk about it. And they said, what do you yeah. think that catch? They said, what do, you, what do you think that catch is compared to like a Willie Mays catch? I said, listen, the Willie Mays catch is great. It's iconic. It's a classic. It's really, it, it's kind of like you were explaining being on the field as a movie. I feel like when I'm watching the Willie Mays, it, like it's a movie, you know, the opening to a movie. But when you compare, I told the gentleman that was asked me, I said, all due respect to the great Willie Mays. Uh, it, it's not even close. I said, Jimmy's catch is, is tenfold better than the Willie Mays catch. Sorry, Willie, if you're listening, but, uh, you know, facts, <laughs> well, facts are facts. It's just the way it is. All right, we'll move on. I'll, I'll enough compliments for you this early in the program. Here we go. <laughs> After 99, you're traded to the Cardinals. Uh, and that's actually where you really came in your own, where you have your biggest years. Uh, 2000 to 2007, you win six consecutive gold gloves to make eight overall. You're, you're an all-star three times. And obviously, probably the pinnacle, uh, you, you're, you're a World Series champion in 2006. And on top of it, you're probably playing in one of the baseballs, uh, the greatest baseball cities uh, in Major League Baseball, Uh Talk about those years a little bit and and kind of that being your, you know, Jimmy Edmonds we know today, we think St. Louis Cardinal. How were those years? You know what? Um, from day one, Tony La Russa was just like a mentor instantly. You know, he was, he was one of those guys that he didn't really have to – he never really said a lot of negative stuff. He didn't really yell and scream – you know, unless it was necessary, but he did a lot of, Hey, if you want to be the leader, this is how you have to approach this. And Hey, you know, if you want to be known as the best, you got to run hard when you're losing, just like you do when you're winning. And he just put those little things in my ears all the time. And I just, he just made me a better player on and off the field and better person off the field. And, um, you know, without him, I don't think, and, and then growing up being kind of young, being a uh, only child, it took me a few years to kind of learn, learn the ropes a little bit, learn how to just kind of keep to myself and, and, and really kind of learn the game. And so that's what he did for me. Him and Mark McGuire were there. And, you know, the, the best thing about my first year in St. Louis was not only Tony La Russa, but I had Mark McGuire, Sean Dunstan, and Eric Davis, and Thomas Howard. Thomas Howard's not really known like those other guys. I'm telling you what, those three guys were our bench players, and they taught our guys more about baseball and got on guys more about not hustling and doing the right thing than anyone I've ever met in my life. And um, they really were one of the main reasons why that organization turned around is not only with the man own, you know, the manager, obviously coaching staff ownership, but those guys, those first couple of years made that team a team and it just never stopped. I mean, everyone just kept passing it down. Yeah, you mentioned Eric Davis. I had a chance to be a teammate of his just for a year in Cincinnati. But but Thomas Howard, blast from the past, uh, Tank they called him. He was uh, I was teammates with with Thomas for about three or four years in Cincinnati, and I remember you you talk about him being a great influence and, and a great guy to have on a team. Uh, 
it was him, Lenny Harris, and Jerome Walton I had in Cincinnati, and they called themselves the Stunt Squad. Like, <laughs> and if they had to play two or three days in a row, Thomas would say, "Listen, man, they don't pay me enough to play every day." But you're right, and and it and it goes to the, you know, the nuances of the game, and maybe the it's it's not the glitz and the glamour that fans see all the time. But you mentioned guys like that that are so important on a team. Uh, it, it's what makes the team in in a lot of in a lot of senses. Big Mac was there. Uh, you you got to big you got there when Big Mac was kind of kind of wrapping up his career. You know he had the obvious '98 big run. Uh, I remember coming out and watching Big Mac hit BP, and you know they told me when he came over from Oakland, they're like Booney, you should go out before the game and watch Mac. And this is when you know people were coming twenty thousand to, to watch him hit back. I said, no, I don't watch other players. You know I got to prepare for the game. I got to get ready. And one day I went out there and I watched it. You watched it a little bit at the end of his career. Speak to that and tell everybody what that was like. I try to tell my kids what it was like now. And they're like, Dad, whatever. You know, Giancarlo, Stanton, Aaron Judge. And I say, yeah, those guys are definitely have ridiculous power. But I said, I don't know that I've ever seen anything quite like Big Mac pregame. Yeah, you know, I, I'll tell you what, the Stanton and those guys probably have that kind of power that Mark had. But Mark had that kind of power at about a 70%, 80% swing. We used to, when I was in Anaheim, a couple guys knew him a little bit. And we would always, like, get around the cage and be like, come on, somebody get him to swing hard one time. Like, come on, Mark, swing hard. Like, try to hit the ball out of the stadium. Like, one time, and he would get so flustered and so mad. And they would literally, some of the times, they'd make us walk away from the cage because he really didn't like all that attention, which is really funny. He just did his job. And, um, you know, then when I got to play with him, get to know him really well, and he really was. He was a quiet, shy guy. Uh, when he would go to, like, you know, Yankee Stadium or Philadelphia or places like that, he would hit underneath. He wouldn't even go outside and hit. He'd hit in the cage, and those are the days he had his biggest games. And it was just it was just the craziest thing I've ever seen. I can't imagine. That's like the one thing I wish I would have saw would have been 1998. But for what I experienced in 2000 and just a little tiny bit in 2001 was just, I felt bad because he was hurt a little bit, but I mean, nothing short of amazing. And the ball just flew and carried. And, you know, a lot of times you, you hit first and you go inside well, when he would hit, everyone would just stay on the field and wait for him to finish, and then the whole the whole team would run in together. But yeah, I remember watching him as a visitor, and, and same thing with Griffey. You know, we used to go watch Griff hit in the kingdom, and I, I you know I'm sure you remember those days when a lot of the guys would just be sitting in the um, the visiting. I don't know. Did you play play with Griff, or did you I, just I came him? up with Griff? Yeah, my first time in Seattle oh, in '92. Uh, we, we were teammates for a few years. Yeah, and then you went back to Seattle after he was gone, huh? Right, right. Yeah, so, but I mean, you remember that. Like, guys would go out and sit in the dugout and watch him take batting practice in the kingdom. It was just, it was, it was, it was unbelievable to watch. And I just think that that, that doesn't happen very often. And there's probably a couple guys, like you said, maybe Stanton and, you know, and, uh, and Judge. But other than that, I, I've never seen anything like that in my career. Yeah, and, and you hit on it. There's not too many guys that, us as players go out of our way 
to, to go out and watch hit batting practice. It's like, we got too much stuff to do. We got to worry about ourselves. You know, may, we're getting our swings, right? We're watching video, doing whatever we're doing, getting ready for our batting practice. Last thing I'm going to do is go watch somebody else. But a guy like Griffin. Tony, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you what, uh, we were in, I think it was 2000, we were in Colorado and he started hitting balls over the concourse and over that uh, hot dog stand. And there were guys from the Rockies running inside after watching it and telling the clubbies to move their cars because he was hitting it over the stadium and onto the parking lot down below where the bus comes. And so the next day we got to the stadium, there was no cars there at all. They were all parked in a regular parking area because he hit balls out of the stadium and they were landing on the uh, Colorado Rockies parking lot. It was amazing. Oh, I believe it. Because the first time in old bush, I, I never played in the new bush, but in the old bush, you, you you remember the flags, Jimmy, up in left field, all the flags with the Hall of Famers up there. He's hitting balls. He's hitting balls into the flags. And this is the mid-90s. You know, I, I think it was that 98 year when him and Sosa were going at it. He's hitting balls into the flags. And I'm going, I mean, people don't realize you, you got to juice one to hit one in the upper deck, let alone those flags, which is close to going out of the stadium. And, and I would just sit there. And, and sometimes, like you said, he wasn't, it looked like he was putting no effort. He'd swing one-handed and the ball would keep going. And, and you had Ronnie Gant and Ray Langford, who are big power guys hitting in the same group. He looked like he was hitting with little leaguers. I mean, that's, that's the difference in Mac and everybody else at that time. Yeah, like he was hitting a golf ball and everyone else was hitting softball. <laughs> It's unbelievable. Another guy, another guy you played with who's, who's, you know, at the end of his career right now, he just signed with the Dodgers. He was on the, we had him on the podcast a few months back, Albert Pujols. And he's a guy starting in 2001, you know, arguably had the, the best start of a career of anybody that's ever played this game. His first 10 years were unbelievable. His, his time in St. Louis, uh, tell me, and, and it, it was from it was from Jump Street too. He came up in '01. He was a rookie of the year. Uh, what was that like watching him? And did you know how special he was? He was going to be from day one. Yeah, you know, it's crazy. Is uh, in spring training that year in '01, um, they literally were going to send him down, and I and I think to be honest with you, they did. And a bunch of guys just went in the office and said, "Tony, you can't send this guy down. He's the best player on our team. He's you know 20 years old. He's." just hit 400 in spring training. He literally took everyone deep uh, and our own pitching staff during all of the, uh, you know, pitchers BP and stuff. And they're just like, you can't send him down. And they're like, are you kidding? And I like, put him in left, put him wherever. It don't matter. Put him in third, just keep him on the team. And so he did. And, uh, um, you know, the rest is history. He's just one of those guys I've never seen anyone. And the way I kind of explain his swing is, you know how lefties will swing, kind of have an uppercut, and a lot of righties will pretty level or swing down? He's one of the only guys I've ever seen that can do both. He can swing up through the ball when he needs to, and he can get on top of balls and drive balls the other way like no one ever can. No, no one's got that swing where it's almost like a lefty-righty built in, and he's special enough to have that. And uh, it, it was sometimes funny and sometimes a little scary and frightening hitting behind him because – Every time I walked up to the plate, the catcher would either be completely pissed off or he was just like, how does this guy do it? I'm like, try hitting after him. It's, it's ridiculous. 
Yeah, it's almost a Bonds type scenario. But yeah, Albert, he was pretty special. I mean, still is pretty special. I think guy's got 2,100. 2,100 ribbies. I can't even fathom driving in that many runs. But all right, we kick forward a little bit to the uh, 06 season, and you you guys end up winning the World Series. Uh, take me through that year a little bit and uh, how special that was. Uh, I, could, I could imagine because uh, there are certain cities in the game of baseball that are, that are special, certain places. You know, you go to Wrigley Field in the day game and you look around, you just know you're somewhere special. You go to Fenway, uh, postseason in Yankee Stadium, there's something about it where, where you can close your eyes and, and you know you're somewhere special. St. Louis is like that as, as far as a baseball city. And to, to win a World Series there had to be pretty awesome. Uh, take me through that a little bit. As far as I think, as far as athletic ability and, and, and the injuries and um, clearly winning percentage, but uh, for some reason, like the last day of the season, everyone just kind of got healthy. And uh, in the first day of uh, first day in, in San Diego, kind of just started putting it together. They wrote down the lineup, and Tony was like, "This is the opening day lineup that we played probably I don't know ten, twenty games with the whole entire season." And so uh, he said, "You know what, guys?" He started looking. He said something. He said, "I'm looking at this lineup, and this is the lineup that I envisioned when we started the season this year. And we've never played as a group like this." And this opportunity, and he said, this is a chance for you to basically go out and show the world that this is that this team can do anything. And uh, I remember like just listening to that, and I was like, you know what? He's probably right because you don't, you know, we all knew at the time. I mean, now I'm into the league, you know, 10, 12, thir- you know, 12, 13 years, and I'm like, anything can happen, y'all. And like, we just went out there, and I think it was the first inning, if I if I'm correct. Um, I'm standing on deck. Albert's hitting and we got two outs and Albert hits a pop-up and he kind of just barely gets up in front of it and he hits it straight up in the air and it comes over by our dugout right by the on-deck circle and Mike Piazza gets a terrible jump, can't find it, and comes sliding over by me and, and not, no, I'm sorry, he just literally runs over to me and just literally clanks it. I mean, clanks it and I'm thinking, Oh my God, you can't do that with Albert hitting. And I can't think, I think it was Jake PB throwing. And I was like, he's going to hang him a slider right here and he's going to hit it a mile. And as sure as, as sure as he did, boom. And it was like two nothing, just like that. And I thought we got a chance. Like this is like, this is the team. And so it just kept going, man. And it just, every day we just found a way to win and got through it and played some, some crazy games in San Diego, crazy games. And, New York and just kept finding ways to win. And then, yeah, talk about craziness going, playing in the world series, winning the world series in St. Louis. And just, I mean, the people have been waiting so long. And even though the team has won in the past, it's just like, that's all they're waiting for. They're literally waiting every year for someone to win so they can have a party. And that parade was crazy. The two days prior to that was crazy. Just the whole series was insane. We obviously beat the Detroit Tigers, which were probably favored 100 to one, but uh, we pulled it together. And it was just—I don't know—it was—it was pretty wild. It was just like one of those things that you just stand in there going, "I can't believe this finally actually happened." Pretty awesome. And before we leave your your St. Louis years, uh, you were talking about Tony and and how you said, you know, 
he gave you a lot of inspiration. He gave you a lot of advice as a young player. He said you couldn't do it without him. I'm sure you could have, but pretty pretty high praise for a, for a skipper. Um, we had Tony on the podcast before this season uh, opened, and as you know, uh, you know a lot of buzz when they signed when they signed Tony in the media. Oh, is he too old school for these modern day players? And I talked to him. He was pretty uh, even keel when it came down. It's like. And my first thought was someone like Tony's great for the game right now. When we're, when, in my opinion, we're getting a little too analytical. We're getting a little too this or a little too that. He, he brings back a little baseball into the game, you know, old school baseball, if we call it that. I don't even know if we're supposed to use that terminology anymore. But I thought he'd be a breath of fresh air. I, I, I think these kids that are in Chicago, he's got a great roster over there. You know, they're banged up pretty good right now, losing their center field and Jimenez out of the gate. But the White Sox have a great – they've got a great nucleus right now. I think someone like Tony coming into the game and bringing a little bit of that that grit and that – you know, he's he's been around 50 years in this game. I thought it would be great. I don't think Tony's going to go in there and say, no, my way or the highway. I think he's just going to add a little bit of that that past with the, with the present – present guys i think he's going to do a great job have you talked to tony uh what do you think about him coming back after all these years well i i keep in touch with him a lot i mean we we speak probably once every month or so but i think you're right and i think if you know if the worst case scenario is and they don't have a great year this year that he teaches some of those guys what he taught me and a couple of these other guys about how being a team and and how to say you know keep it together and don't ever, you know, never talk about the media, the teammates in the media and just play hard even when you're losing. And, and, and like it's, it's, it goes on and on and on. It's like how many times, you know, 95, we lost by one game in, in that playoff race. And he said, you know, you lose and win in April and May. It's not the last game of the year when all of a sudden you're, you're, you know, tied at the end of the season and you lose and it's over with. It's like these games are so important. And I think that that's, something that he brings to the table every day. And it's like, it's, it's almost comical because he basically hits you over the head with it. You don't have a choice to li- but to listen to it. I mean, it's, he doesn't, he never wavers. His tone is the same every day. He, he, you ask him how he's doing. He said, I'll let you know at 10 o'clock, like win or lose, that's how I'm doing. And that is it every single day. And you just take over that mindset and you're basically like, okay, you know, back when you were young, you're like, okay, it's the 11th inning, somebody score. And now you're playing on one of Tony's teams and it's like, okay, it's the 11th inning. We need to effing score and win this game. And that's just the way the whole group took on that uh, mentality. And it just changed the way everyone played in St. Louis. Yeah. And I think it's cool. Those days, the LaRussas and, you know, I got to play for Pinella ended up being my favorite, but I also got to play for Bruce, Bruce Bochy and just that old kind of old school mentality, uh, you know, it taught you a lot of things. It was almost like a father figure in the room, if the, if that makes sense, without sounding too corny. But oh, yeah, definitely, sure. definitely, definitely, really cool, and definitely, there's something to it there. All right, so after the 07 season, you traded the Padres, and you end up, you know, playing for the Padres, and then going to the Cubs, uh, and and then in in 2000 in 2010 you end up signing with Milwaukee, going to Cincinnati. I kind of did that at the end. I bounced around a couple teams. After you know, kind of you know, you were always known as Angels, and then really 
in St. Louis. What do you think, looking back, uh, bouncing around at the end of your career, uh, how do you look to those days? I know how I looked at mine. You know, uh, worst, worst thing I ever did. Uh, I, I, took, I took some really good things away from it, and I just uh, was a little bit embarrassed by it. But, um, you know, I, um, I, I thought I was – I got in the best, probably one of the best shapes of my life uh, in 08 when I went to San Diego, and just everything I did backfired. And, you know, hitting in that ballpark now, that new ballpark, especially before they put those um, newer buildings around it, ball just didn't carry. And I mean, hit so many balls, and I thought, God, that's a home run. Oh, that's a home run. That's a home run. I'm like, now I'm hitting 190 with one homer, and I should have been hitting 270 with 10. And I was in really good shape, played really well, just couldn't get a hit. And I went to Chicago, and I was like, well, I'm going to give it one more shot. And I mean, I literally just was the same guy. I didn't do anything wrong. And I hit 20 home runs in a half a season. And I thought, this going to be great. I'm going to come back here and I'm going to play here. And, um, you know, I didn't even want a lot of money. And the next thing I know, I got no phone call. And they gave Milton Bradley three years, $30 million. And I was like, what the hell? Like, what's going on here? But uh, and then I only got minor league invites. And I said, you know what? I'm done. I'm, I'm pretty good. I don't really need to play anymore. I don't really like moving around. and um, I was, you know, like I said, I've loved being an angel and a Cardinal and I was done best time of my life outside of playing, you know, for the Cardinals, obviously. And the angels was, I went to Chicago and I learned so much, um, about playing for new teams. Uh, but I just got new appreciation for the Cubs organization and just the way you have to do things there. And that was what was really cool. And I had a blast. Um, and then I sat out a year and then Milwaukee called me and they said, Hey, I think, you know, you know, we need a spot for you. We need an outfielder. And I tried it again, made the team, had a blast in Milwaukee, uh, ended up tearing my Achilles partly. And then took a trade to over to Cincinnati because Walt Jockety was there. He was my, uh, my general manager who stuck by me every day in St. Louis. And, um, he said, we need you for the, for the pennant chase. And I was like, I don't really want to go there. Like, I loved Milwaukee. It was underrated. It was the best fans, great teammates. Uh, and, I, and they were all, go, you're in first place. You're going to be in the playoffs again. And I knew I was hurt, and I'm like, but I can't play. And I went over there, and just one thing led to another, and I hit a couple of home runs and was running around the bases one day, and my Achilles just kept tearing and tearing and tearing. And then, you know, finally I just couldn't play anymore. So it's just like, what did I do to myself? Um, so – some really good moments, some really bad moments. I hate the fact that I played, you know, for four teams uh, in the last two years, but so is such is life. And, um, you know, I, you know how it is, Booney. We're very fortunate to ever put on a uniform, let alone put it on for 17 years. And it goes really fast, man. And I, uh, I just try now to teach my kids to respect the game. I try to teach the kids here with the Cardinals to respect everything every day and, and try to do the best you can. And it's not always about going out there and giving 110%. It's about respecting your teammates and respecting yourself and playing the game as hard as you can that day. Uh, and, and that's the kind of way I just went about it. And so had a blast doing it and it did went by quick. Yeah. And, and, and to you, to the point of, of talking to these young kids today, when asked, uh, you know, what would you do differently, Brett? I'd say, you know, I do a lot of things the same, but if we could have time back, we, of course, we'd all, we'd all do some things different. And the one thing I tell a young player is appreciate the uniform, 
appreciate being in the big leagues because, and not that we're arrogant about it when we're in the middle of our career, but we're so consumed with who's pitching tomorrow, who's pitching on Friday. My swing stinks. Uh, okay. My swing's good, but I got to watch video. And we're so worried about the day to day and, and performing and doing well that I, I can speak for myself. I didn't stop long enough to just look around and appreciate what I had. Like uh, it, it's almost to the point where you don't do it on purpose. I don't think you, uh, take it for granted on purpose, but it's what we do. We come to the ballpark every day and this is how we're programmed. We're big leaguers. We do this for a living, but when, when it's all over with and and you get a chance to step away and, and look 10 years out in in retirement, man, I wish there are a few times where I just said, you know, I wish I would have just embraced it a little bit more and, and woke up and go, wow, I'm a big leaguer. This, how cool is this? Nobody gets to do what I get to do. And, and, you know, that's the one thing I tell players, but I think that's cool that, yeah, enjoy this, appreciate it, uh, respect it, because not too many people get to do it. You know, big league uniforms earned. It's not a right. And, uh, yeah, I think that's I think that's a good point you make. Uh, after 2010, you retire. After 2010, you retire. Uh, now is a pretty cool time. And and I talked about that St. Louis Cardinals organization uh, being a pretty awesome and a pretty special organization. I put it up there with the Yankees. And especially when you talk about the Cardinals Hall of Fame, I mean, you're talking Lou Brock, uh, Kurt Flood, Dizzy Dean, Bob Gibson, uh, you know, for me, a second baseman, Rogers Hornsby, who who I look back in the archives and see his numbers and, and they're crazy. But obviously the wizard, Ozzie Smith, uh, you get the call in 2014. That's a pretty special Hall of Fame. What was that call like for you? Well, it was interesting because um, that was the first year and I was talking to Mr. DeWitt on the phone and I said, well, that's awesome. You know, like, thank you so much. And that'll be cool. Get a plaque. And he said, no, and you'll get a red jacket. I said, no, 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 no. I don't want a red jacket. Like, and this is a true story. I don't want a red jacket. I don't want that. That's for those guys. Like put us in a plaque, give us a little place in the history in the museum, whatever but I don't feel like I deserve to walk on the field with Gibby, Brock, Ozzy, Stan. Um, geez. I mean, it, it just, you know, it just doesn't end. And it was just like, how do you expect us to go out there and stand next to those guys? And I said, with all due respect, I don't really think that we deserve that. And the conversation was interesting because when he was like, you know, this Jimmy, this is what we want to do. And, and I still to this day was like, I, Mr. DeWitt, I just don't want to do it. I like, I just don't think it's right from what I have come to respect out of these guys. I really just don't want to put a red jacket on and go stand next to those guys. And he said, well, I'm sorry, but this is where we're going to have to do it. So you're going to have to do it this way. And I was like, well, if you say so, but, uh, and I have that most respect for the DeWitt family. They've been nothing but great to me. And, you know, when, when I'm talking to, you know, Mr. Duet and, uh, and his son, Billy, the third is running the team. It's just like, you're talking to royalty in the this, in this city. And it's just, um, you know, I have so much respect for them and they did so much for my family and, and us and just such a classy organization. It was just a pleasure to be a part of. Hitters today versus our generation. 
what are the what do you see that the good things you see things you you wish would change a little bit give me your your version of it god right now watch your face huh jesus i mean <laughs> I, I i don't understand these guys are like get guys are getting hit guys are getting thrown balls over their heads it's I've seen pitchers bounce sliders in the grass. I'm like, I don't really understand what's going on all of a sudden. But, you know, the hitters, I, I mean, you know, I don't think that they're all buying into launch angle as much as they're just getting paid to hit home runs. And the, I know the balls are juiced again because I've been on the field with them and you could hear them. But, uh, you know, it's you got every guy out there is max effort on the mound. Uh, and, and with all due respect, I mean, they got the, some stuff. I, you know, you watch some of these guys pitch now and I'm just like, Jesus, I'm glad he wasn't throwing when I played. The only thing that saved me was being left-handed. So, you know, I, I think that they got a tough thing going on right now with the shift and the whole deal, but that's just part of it. I mean, you know, people keep saying, oh, they should do away with the shift. And I said, well, wh- what would you do next? Just this guy can't hit a slider. So don't throw it to him. Like, come on, let's go. Let's just be real. Like they, they got to figure out how to overcome everything just like everyone else did and uh you have to move on and i just think it's i think the game today is still great i think the guys are incredible athletes and they're fun to watch but like i said holy watch your face i mean some of these kids are throwing so hard and guys are getting hit in the face and last last night poor kevin uh pilar and like i, I mean i just i want to reach out to them and be like hey you know hope you're okay and it's just it's insane i mean it really is Favorite center fielders Jim Edmonds like to watch, current or past? Um, well, you know what's funny is Kevin Pillar when he was in uh, when he was in Toronto was pretty pretty special. Um, I, I don't know, I don't I don't watch the game as much as I used to. Obviously, Griffey. Um, growing up, and I know you remember these guys, but like Devo and Gary Pettis and. Um, who else? Uh, guys that came through Anaheim were, were amazing. Um, who am I missing? Who was the guy at the Grand Slam in the play in the in the in the uh, what was wrong with me? I can't even think of his name in the uh, All Star game. I think it was the only Grand Slam ever to hit a, in the All Star game. He played in Anaheim, left-handed hitter, center field. Left-handed uh, hitter, Lynn. center field. I don't know. I'm I'm just thinking of our time. Freddie, I'm thinking of Tory Hunter. I'm thinking Freddie of Mike. Lynn. Oh, but I grew oh, up. Oh, Freddie Lynn, you're going back in the day. Yeah, but I idolize those guys, man. And, you know, obviously everyone loves Griffey. Um, but right now, it's just kind of hit or miss. There's so many good athletes. You know, I, I just would I'd love to be able to see some guys play both sides of the ball a little bit better. You know, you, you, you watch your guys strike out and then go stand out in the outfield and kind of mope around. And, um, you know, they don't play as well as they should on defense. So, it, you know, times change. goes up and down. I think it's just still – I'm blown away with two things in baseball. I think the velocity of the fastball and the speed of the game with the guys running down the line now. And that's just something that, you know, we didn't really have. And I, and I know we had good base stealers, but I don't think we had guys that could run this well. Yeah. The, the physicality is getting unbelievable. You know, just why I'm just watching it from an early age and just the size. It seems like it seems like the size of the player just getting big. I mean, even these guys coming coming in from the draft and they're off to, you know, low A ball and they're just monsters. It's like, you know, I've always been short. and I, I always remember 
I was always one of the shorter guys, but I'd stand in an elevator. Yeah, the starting pitchers, a lot of those guys are 6'3", 6'4", you know, after the game, go back to the hotel. But I'm telling you, now it seems like everybody's big. I mean, DJ LeMayhew, he's 6'3", he's 6'4", six, six, playing second base. That back in my in our day, that was you know it was for the little it was for the five ten guys like me. Now the big you got big athletes playing second base. So yeah, I think from a from a physicality point, it's definitely changing. Uh, just the the size and the speed and and the the preparation of the athlete. It's it's human development. Everything's getting better. Fifty years from now, there's probably going to be ten Giancarlo stands, but. To this day, we've never seen it. We've never seen uh, a 6'8", 280-pound ripped right fielder. Well, now we got Aaron Judge, you know, but but as life goes on, you know, I'm sure we're going to see more and more of that. Yeah, you think about, like, even just watching the game last night, I'm sure you probably watched Albert, but Max Muncy's now playing second base. Like, he went from first base, now he's playing second. Yeah. Um, Mike, I mean, Mike Trout is Brian Urlacher in a baseball uniform. I mean, it's just it's crazy to watch some of the stuff that these guys do. You know, we got a guy here, Tyler O'Neill. He's you know he's he's not super tall, but he's he's built like a bodybuilder, and his sprint speed is like in the top ten in all of baseball. So it's yeah, it's crazy some of the stuff they're throwing out there now. All the things in your career, it's all said and done. Uh, what are you most proud of? I think, you know, to be honest with you, everyone says the World Series and all the awards. I think just just really playing and, and getting the respect of my peers. Um, the fact that I went out there and played a game that I thought only basically gods could play, superheroes were playing when I was a kid, and I got to do that for 17 years, and some of my kids got to see it. I think that's just a, an amazing accomplishment, and uh the longevity was just something. I grinded it out, man. I played through so many injuries. I had 12 surgeries. Um, you know, World Series, unbelievable. I think my very first gold glove was a very big accomplishment for me because of just how hard you have to work on defense to be able to get something like that. And, you know, offensive side of things are kind of just hit or miss as far as luck goes. But, uh, yeah, just I, I like the fact that I just played, you know. I got a chance to play, and I made the best out of it. Well, very good. Jimmy Edmonds, pleasure having you on the show. I appreciate you coming on. And what we do here at the end of each and every Boone podcast is we bring in the voice of the podcast, Dan Levy, to ask you a question from one of the fans. Dan? Hi, Jim. How are you? I'm good. How are you, Dan? This one comes from Eric in St. Louis, and he wants to know this. Who are some of the most underrated teammates you played with? Oh, wow. Um, in St. Louis, I'll say uh, I would go with like Edgar Renteria, Mark Rosalonic. Um, shoot. Let me see. I'm trying to think of just the guys that have popped in. Rosalonic is a good one. I love Rosalonic. He was one of my favorites, just the way he played the game. I mean, obviously, David Eckstein kind of came a long way and got a lot of publicity once he won the World Series, but you know, had to really work hard. Um, I loved guys, man. I had so much fun playing the Cardinals organization. And even, you know, even when we were younger with the angels and stuff, but those guys probably stick out in my mind as probably the most, um, as far as didn't get a lot of fanfare, but were, were some of my favorite players. 
And speaking on behalf of everybody here in Chicago, nobody was happy with Milton Bradley. <laughs> nobody. Well, I could have been there for three more years. That's what I wish. That would have been a blast. We, we would have much rather had you than him. Believe you me. All right. Well, Jim, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We really appreciate it, sir. Well, thank you guys for having me and all my best to both of you and talk to you soon, hopefully. Mailbag. All right, Brett, you know that sound. It is time to dip our hands into the trusty mailbag. I think you you like that a little too much, Dan. Not only do I like it too much, but when we're done with the podcast, I still make the sound. This one comes from Alex in Portland. Brett, did you see the play with the Padres where Manny Machado slid into second base in the middle of the base path? And what did you think? Uh, I heard a lot about it. I got a lot of a lot of texts. A lot of what do I think? What do I think? I had to look a bit, look at it because uh, you know Manny's done some things in the past that uh, aren't on the up and up in my view. So I was interested to look at the play. Uh, my interpretation, as I think the rules are these days, because the rules are, have been changing. I watched that play. Thought it was a really smart play. Uh, it caught him off guard. The, the, the thing you got to think about when there's a ground ball like that, you don't want to run into an easy double play where you can tag you, throw you out at first. So to you, you got to find a way to get get uh, away from the defender. Manny did something I've never seen before. He just went into a slide in the middle of the base path. I mean, he was probably 30 feet from the base, but he went into a slide. I didn't think it was a dirty slide. He wasn't trying to, to hurt anybody he just went into a slide i think what happened with the defender is that's the last thing he expected but i think well within the rules and legal i think it was a smart play smart play all right let's dig on back into the mailbag shall we all right this one comes from craig in detroit and brett do you have any binge watching suggestions right now on netflix or hulu Oh, I've got so many, and I forget all of them. Okay, I got one for you. Startup. It, it's kind of rated R, so this is more of an adult show. Uh, really good. Really good. Uh, yeah, it's on Netflix. Startup. It, it'll it'll hook you from the two-minute mark. You'll be all in. I'm only on episode five, but it's the newest one. You know, most of these, most of these episodes that we suggest – uh, or get suggested to us kind of have to grow on us. You know, you feel it out. You sure. watch a few. I don't know if I like this will get you from minute two. start up on Netflix. Gotcha. You know, what? I actually started rewatching breaking bad and I forgot just how much of that stuff. I forgot. It's such a great show. That is a great show. So if you if you're a big breaking bad fan and you haven't watched it in a long time, I guarantee you watch that first episode and you'll forget about 98% of it. It well, is Well, you know what also is a good one like that? Entourage. Entourage, Entourage I, is I still think, great. I think I think Entourage is kind of the uh the north star when all this Netflix oh, yeah. series started. Uh, I think it's the kind of the pioneer, but I rewatched it 10 years later. I enjoyed it just as much. And, and our, you're right. You and forget our, all that stuff. And our boy Steve is on the last episode, so that helps it too. That's right. All right. That's going to do it for this year, Brett Boone Podcast. And once again, we want to thank everybody who went ahead and asked some questions, and they did that by going to him on Twitter at the Boone 29 or he's also on Facebook and Instagram. That's where we get a lot of our questions, too. My name is Dan Levy. I'm the technical director and producer of the Boone Podcast. Executive producer is Rich Herrera. 
Digital content for the Boom Podcast is provided by Liz Landry. Please share the Boom Podcast with neighbors, friends, sports lovers, and especially those who love the game of baseball. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode of the show. And while you're at it, give it a five-star rating and share your feelings about the Boom Podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show. For all of us here on the Boom Podcast, my name is Dan Levy. Thanks for listening. We'll do it again soon. Take care.